I would spend the first three years of formative education in ethics. What values mean, what respect means, what kindness means, and what empathy means. We are surrounded by huge abundance, massive beauty, and endless supply of food and drink and sustenance. But yet what we've done is we've divided ourselves up into microscopic racist communities, killing everything around us killing and everything each around us and each other. Hello and welcome to Promote the Hell Out of It. My name is Ms Trujillo and for anyone watching on YouTube, I apologise for my lips being out of sync. I basically recorded the video section uh, for this introduction and for the outro and then realised that the audio was absolutely atrocious. Uh, but for anyone new to the podcast, I chat to people who I think have interesting things that can help our personal progression or that of society as a whole, conversations I think that aren't really being had, or that not a lot of people have that much knowledge about. So far on the podcast, this has included street artists, musicians, activists, small business owners, and on this particular episode, I chat to Jonathan MacDonald, author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Powered by Change, advisor to some of the biggest corporate companies, such as Apple, Microsoft and so on uh, and from someone that you'd expect to be advising these companies you'd expect the discussion to maybe revolve around finances uh, around statistics around how much money these companies are making but his whole thing is about looking at how we can change how we can be accountable and how we can look forward to the future as opposed to worrying so much about how we are lining our pockets right now so without any further ado i am really excited for you all to hear this conversation i had with the wonderful jonathan mcdonald i would spend the first three years of formative education in ethics what values mean what respect means what kindness means and what empathy means we are surrounded by huge abundance massive beauty and endless supply of food and drink and sustenance but yet what we've done is we've divided ourselves up into microscopic racist communities, killing everything around us killing and everything each other. around us and each other. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you so much for chatting to me today. How are you? I'm lovely. The sun is shining. I feel good about life and I'm honoured to be part of this, this uh, show. Oh, that's very lovely of you. Although I do wish the sun was shining where, where I am. I can't be that far away from you, and it's pretty grey and miserable here, to be honest. Oh, well, I, in that case, I'm just borrowing the sun for a bit. In an hour, I'll be <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. We're, we're on our way to Brighton in a bit, so I'm hoping by the time we get there, the sun will be shining and it's not a, a grey, a grey, miserable beachside day. Yeah, it will be all right. Anyway, so what should we talk about today? Well, I, I've got lots I'd like, I'd like to talk to you about. You're involved in, in so much... Um, but I guess the, the place to start would be by giving a little bit of, of background for, for our listeners, maybe, as to, as to what you do, because I know all about it, but they might not. Yeah, okay, so um, my, my role in life, my purpose of being on this um, planet at the moment is to expand the way that people think, and it's a, quite a humbling role. It's, it's something that is sometimes... Um, uh, unpaid and under-rewarded in terms of the, the traditional business, but in terms of um, value, 
uh, it's highly rewarding. Uh, I love being able to enable people to think of things in different ways. And so that manifests through um, speaking on stages and advising companies and um, writing books. And I've had some, uh, some successes and failures in all of those things. And uh, you know, I've had my own companies, most of which have failed, but some of which have, have succeeded. And, um, and, and the learnings that I've had from my career have been, have been the highlights, you know. So and I, don't, I don't see things in terms of success and failure. I see things as, as everything that we can learn from. And um, the most recent uh, activity, I guess, has been in, in the, the book world. I've, my, my book, Powered by Change, um, went immediately to number one in Amazon and then became a Sunday yeah. Times bestseller. And, yeah, I've, it's been, it's been <clears throat> shocker, actually, because I've written four, I'd written four books previous to that, and the only person that bought them was my mum. So um, <laughs> I don't quite know what changed with this time. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, it's been a huge honour. Well, I think I think that one of the things for me personally is that the the topics you're talking about are are extremely relatable to to everyone, because although that as you've mentioned, change is is maybe what everything revolves around, but that in a lot of what you talk about is always quite linked to to that other side of failure and how not to view it that way, and that's I think something that people have to deal with on on quite a regular basis, and a lot of people maybe run away from from that thought process. Yeah, I think the that we, we are naturally um, uh, inclined to um, to seek uh, what is traditionally known as success. So, for instance, you know, our, our schooling um, teaches us about um, the way that corporations essentially run. In fact, the whole uh, the whole um, mechanic of schooling is someone's in charge. You're not in charge. You're subordinate. <laughs> this is the boss. You'll do what the boss says, otherwise you'll be disciplined. And it's structured as such to, to, to make us work in a corporate world of capitalism, which, which you're, you're not in charge, someone else is in charge, and if you don't do what they say, you're disciplined. And, and so, we are, yeah, and so we, we are structured, we are duty-bound, um, in theory, to, to toe the line, aim for something that is relatively mediocre. If you aim too high, you'll get your head chopped off. So you aim, aim for mediocre settle for contentment rather than any form of bliss or happiness. And, um, and so it's no surprise that then if things don't go well, um, in inverted commas, we see that as failure because everything that we've ever been taught since we started school was that um, failure is not doing well in exams, failure is um, not being skinny enough, not being white enough, not being um, uh, conforming enough. You know, if you, if you can conform... And don't aim too high, don't speak too loud, um, don't dream too much. Um, then you're a success. And um, which, which is a very bizarre point of view when you when you translate that through to business and how we're expected or how we view successful businesses. Like it's almost at odds because I can relate to being at school and thinking, well, you're supposed to you're supposed to do new things that are inspiring and like scientists discovered all these new ideas and yet, as you said, we're being taught to stick in lines that basically make that quite unachievable in a lot of the times. Yeah, we, it's, it's structured as such. You know, we're not, we're not meant to... The, the version of success that we're meant to have is success enough but not too much that the people at the top feel threatened. And... Uh, <laughs> And so there's, 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 a, there's a band in which success is allowed. 
And, um, and one of the ways of controlling uh, people's uh, thought patterns to not dream too much is to limit the uh, amount of information that they have access to. Um, in fact, I would say that the greatest thing that we could do for our young children, our young kids, the, youngs the youngsters of today, is to arm them with information that will enable them to realize what's possible. And that's the biggest threat. Uh, the, biggest form of, the biggest form of revolution that we could take would be to um, ensure that information is the armory that is widely distributed. And I mean information such as um, what other forms of currency could exist, what types of society could exist if, if this version wasn't um, needed, what type of companies could be run um, that don't have psychopathic leaders, uh, what, you know, giving, give, giving another view of what real democracy means, because let's not be on any, any uncertainty as to whether or not we live in one, because we don't. So, so um, that's the type of information that I think we should, we should, we should be um, uh, vehemently giving widely and distributing as widely as possible. And, and that is it's close to my heart. And I feel that it would, it's one of the things that I love about what you're doing with this podcast is that is, this, is a, this is an example of arming people with information. And, and that's why I'm, I'm absolutely honored to be on it. Oh, I, I really appreciate that. And, and the truth is, Jonathan, that, that for me, uh, what it's helping me do is arm myself with this information. There's, there's subjects that have come up on the podcast um, that I knew nothing about before that are so important and, and are being hidden because no one wants us to really understand these subjects or see what's going on in other parts of the world. Um, I talked about the Kurdistan revolution with, with Kelly Kemp, who's co-chairman for Kurdistan Solidarity in Portsmouth, mm -hmm. and some of the things that are going on over there and the, stand, uh, the stands they're making for a new government that our own governments are nowhere near achieving, and you just don't read about and people aren't aware about. Um, so I, I know that you're very involved with this, not only in your books and stuff, but also through the Thought Expansion Network. Um, what, was, what was the origin of that? I, it's obviously something that, that's very important to you, but what, where did you decide to take that stand and involve other people in having these conversations? Um, I became aware that people... I became aware... No, let me start that in a different way. I, I, I realised that <clears throat> about 200 years ago, there was a, uh, a, a movement in the United Kingdom uh, of discourse. It was a movement of discourse. Essentially, people... Um, would meet for coffee and talk, and uh, it was it was a practice that was that was done widely across the land, um, especially in the main cities. The outcome of that discourse, those conversations, formed what became uh, Lloyd's Bank. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it formed what has become how leisure centres operate. The discourse, the conversations between people. Um, are the uh, are a superpower of innovation. So, um, my view has been that, uh, in the same way of, of distributing information being a power, uh, nothing is more powerful than the cooperation of people, and no one knows as much as everyone. So, okay. I'm, so under whatever guise, whatever label, um, whether it's the Thought Expansion Network, whether it's the whether it's um, you know, simply a Facebook group that people discuss stuff in, whether it's 
me speaking in a room, whether it's us doing this podcast interview, whether it's a TV series that I may end up doing. Um, at the end of the day, all I'm doing is enabling people to think and giving them tools, arming people with information uh, so that they can succeed in whichever way that they view success to be. I view success to be peace, by the way. I, I, I don't buy into the capitalist structures at all. I'd be, I'd be quite happy to be sitting on a boat in the middle of an ocean with <laughs> Absolutely penniless. And I think that's one of the reasons I was so happy to have you on the podcast, because uh, it's a refreshing point of view, and I, and I enjoy hearing it. Well, thank you, mate. And to be honest with you, if more people did have that point of view, then there'd be, less, there'd be fewer wars. And people Absolutely. And there Absolutely. Be so it's, it's some weird, strange thing that we have in human ego, which is, is that we think that we're trying to gain something. And we're trying to drive towards something. And it's the, probably the most false of all gods. We, what happens when we try and strive for something is that we arrive at it, or we don't. If we don't, we feel we failed. See previous point. If we arrive, if we arrive at it, then we try and strive for something that's a bigger goal. Um, when, you, when, you, when, you are, when you're earning £600,000 a year, the, the target is to earn a million pounds a year. Um, when you've got £10,000 in the bank savings, the target is 20000 um, people who have who make ten million dollars a year are trying to get into the ultra high net of a hundred million. Yeah, and yeah. When you arrive there, you try and achieve more, and therefore you never actually you never actually achieve happiness from that. So, a, rather than have that as a false god or as a goal, my view is to do the absolute opposite and reduct and um, deproduce. I I think that we would be um, far more peaceful if we were to give away more rather than try and gain more. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a huge issue and I think it's I've talked about it on the podcast before, but something that I personally had to do is when I moved to Barcelona, because we were moving to a situation where we had a bit more spare money because uh, the expenses were less and because I was near uh, snowboarding, it was like two hours on the train and near the beach, near Morocco, near the rest of Europe, I had all these plans of all these things I suddenly wanted to do, forgetting that I already do a lot of things I enjoy. I make music, I, I go on tour, I, I travel. So suddenly adding all these extra things I, I wanted to do only made life more difficult. I was getting frustrated at myself because I wasn't, I wasn't doing the things I thought were essential to my happiness. And it wasn't until I, I thought back on that and realized that I needed to make a list of what actually makes me happy, what I enjoy. And then the actual money you need to make that happen, to do the things you actually enjoy, is often not, not as much as you think. But well, the, if you just keep adding to the list, it becomes a lot of money that you need. That's right. And um, I, think the, I, I think that we, if we think about what a freedom figure is, um, and I would class a freedom figure as the ability to do anything that we want without worrying about money. Um, yeah. If if you find that that playing music, um, being near water, walking in nature, and hugging people that you love <laughs> is what your, is what gives you the most peace and happiness, um, none of that actually requires the expenditure of very much money at all. Um, yeah. It's only things that you know. If you need a, if you need a Ferrari and a rooftop apartment in Soho and an expensive drug habit and only Michelin-star restaurant, then you need a lot of money. 
that might be an issue. Yeah, that might be an issue. Yeah, but I'm yet to find anyone who has that lifestyle that's truly happy, let alone peaceful. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I guess the next step is how do you take this this line of thinking? How do you take uh, conversations that can expand uh, what our way of of thinking things through is, and actually take that through to to active change, to making decisions that actually affect our lifestyle? Because it's all in good talking about something, putting it into practice can be a, a lot harder. Yeah, I, th I think I think that we have a we we can choose how we. Um, progress these things um, into practice and make it habitual it's actually down to introspection of, as to how we want to live and it, we all have a personal sovereignty over that choice um, and, and I, I don't think that it's um, any more or less complicated than choice and it, we do have a choice if we can, if we can itemise um, what we actually have as our values and how we want to live what you've done, for instance, has been is inspirational, um, uh, and your your travels and your realizations and your growth. Um, my cousin uh, Tevi has had a similar journey in the last three years. He disappeared, went off grid, disconnected, literally phone off, computer off, left job, went around went around the world, and now lives in a, a remote farmhouse in Sicily um, in abundance. Uh, uh, with, with, with no money, but absolute abundance. He is surrounded by more fruit and vegetables than he can ever consume in the rest of his life. <laughs> and, and he's surrounded by people who are permanently smiling and breathing the freshest of fresh air and, and an ocean um, with warm water and a beautiful wife and a beautiful son. Um, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, and, and so, the, so what choice he made was a choice of, that, that anyone can make. And the choice, really, I think, if, if I were to encapsulate it, is, um, is one of, am I living the truest version of myself? And if I'm not, what can I change to be the truest version of myself? That generates, obviously, the question of what is the truest version of myself? And I think we all already know the answers. We know what actually drives us to be the most peaceful and the most, um, the most content. We already know that. I'll give you an example, let, let, so it's totally non-esoteric. Um, if you go to a uh, fast food restaurant and you have um, a massive greasy burger and loads of artificial fries and a litre of um, carbonated um, sugar water, your body will tell you then and there exactly what that did for it. However, if you go and eat some form of raw plant or have some um, spinach or some kale or some carrots and some broccoli and some um, any form of seeds or nuts, your body immediately does tell you what it, you have done to it. If, yep. we're if we're listening, our skin will tell us if we're looking. Um, our hair will show us if we're feeling and funny enough, our relationships will then display that if we are aware. And so we already know what the truest version of ourselves is. We already know whether or not we feel better and whether we, whether we sleep better after exercise, um, whether we smile more listening to lovely music. All of the answers are blatantly obvious to all of us. 
And um, the, it is absolutely much more a, a more attainable high walking in a park in fresh air than it is taking a line of cocaine. It's <laughs> un, un, unarguably better high. <laughs> and, and so we know that that's true. We know that taking what's from the ground and, uh, and, uh, and using nature as our friend is what we need. We all know that as human, uh, a human truth. And so that's what I mean by living in the truest version of ourselves. And it's liberating. Abs- and it, yeah, and it's- absolutely. I think one of the things, so it's taking the same example that you've given with, with a line of cocaine, it, I think everyone knows that. But if you're a cocaine addict making that change to stop using lines of cocaine and actually enjoying the fresh air is is a big difficult first step to start making and is that not how most people feel maybe when they're stuck in say a dead-end job nine to five in a city hate everything they're doing the idea of like they know that the better self is is maybe living in the countryside and and working freelance but how do they actually get over the fear which is is just as as strong as as the hopes that we have that fear of actually of failing which is what you talk about so much yeah well two things firstly the choice is dead simple the choice to stop being a cocaine addict is the same choice as whether or not you want to drink a glass of water or a glass of milk so uh, i don't buy and will not stand for the lack of personal accountability of the fact that we don't have choice that bit aside the thing that is uh, then tough is how how um tough we are on ourselves in terms of executing that choice that's where it's down to your own personal strength rather than uh, rather than leaning into the weakness on your point about the fear side of course fear is actually f-e-a-r is false expectations appearing real um (laughs) and, and so fear is a purely artificial construct there is no such thing as fear um in the world there is energy but there is no fear fear is a thought and that thought is false. It's purely based, and I mean false, not being disrespectful to thoughts, but it's something, <laughs> yeah. it's something that isn't a thing. It's a, it's a cre- cre- creation of our internal prison guards inside our heads that are determined to sabotage our happiness and our freedom. And so we could look at fear in a different way than many people do. If we were in a dead-end job and we know that we would actually feel much more comfortable uh, with l- less money and less possessions in more nature, then the fear of doing so can be deconstructed down to the components of what's driving those false expectations appearing real. Is it, and let's itemize them, is it the fact that our parents would feel as if we failed? Is it the fact that our friends would think that we've gone nuts? Is it the fact that we think that what makes us popular is having a title of vice president? And then if we go down one level deeper, how much of those opinions, how many of those opinions are we willing to bet our life on um, serving? Because if you look at the deathbed regrets of people, and if you go to jonathanmacdonald.com forward slash life, you'll see a list of these deathbed regrets that that nurses in the past have, have actually witnessed on people's deathbeds. The things that they say um, that, that, patients on in their dying moments say and I've been um I have nursed two people in their final days and witnessed exactly these deathbed regrets and the first one first one of all 
is I wish I'd let myself be more happy. Second is I wish I hadn't worked so hard. The third <laughs> is I wish I'd spent more time around people that I loved and loved me. So if that is the majority of your feeling at the end of your life, why would you not live like that earlier on? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I get hear an argument of that point, even from people with the most yes, but attitudes of, <laughs> of like, yes, but I need to pay my mortgage. It's like, do you need to live in a six bedroom house with you and your partner? Do you need that? Um, yes, but I need to pay my car payments. Well, do you actually need a car? <laughs> bearing in mind that you live in London, have you tried walking? It's incredible. And also, <laughs> I've actually found a route between, I can pretty much get, from Camden to Kensington, only walking through parks. Yeah, yeah in London, which is 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 pretty big deal, really. The amount of green you're getting doing that. Yeah, man. And I do like kind of ten to twenty thousand steps a day around around towns in nature, and it's possible to it's possible to do that. I probably do seventy to one hundred kilometers a week in nature and walking. And what I've done is stop taking public transport and stop driving so much. And just getting some shoes that feel really comfortable. That's so good, so good. Something I'm I'm really interested, and I'd be I'd like your opinion on, is is how uh, language can affect our line of thinking sometimes. So something that that comes up to me from from what you've just talked about is how it's almost like the word fear should have had two separate words altogether. One for things like burning ourselves in a fire, which is completely rational and could actually hurt us and one for things that are ir irrational and we have complete control over. But obviously society, along with the fact that it's the same word, of, almost coaxes into viewing these things in the same way. Like yep. being skint, we view as the same as burning ourselves on a fire, when yep. actually they're completely separate lines of thinking. That's right. I, I, it, we could do a lot worse than to, um, than to view rational fear as inversely proportional to, um, to information and knowledge. Because the more we know, the less fear we have in terms of rationality. Um, and so the, this goes back directly to the beginning point, which is why we need to arm people with information. Arming people with information reduces fear, it increases liberation, and enables people to be more peaceful and happy. Um, and I, I, I also, by the way, uh, there's no such thing as, as, um, as, as uh, pain, just to make a, a literal point here with the, the pain pain isn't something that <laughs> yeah, yeah. actually exists it's a nerve it's a nerve it's a nervous it's an awareness of a nervous pathway and you can program that extremely easily you can program your receptors to pain in the same way as you can program your receptors to pleasure and if i were to have a magic wand i would enable the whole world to realize that the power of their thoughts can stop and start any form of pain and pleasure, stop and start any form of freedom and incarceration. Um, Viktor Frankl, um, the Holocaust survivor, who watched his whole family um, getting gassed and is probably my, one of my favorite writers, said that there's a gap between stimulus and response, and within that gap lies our growth and our freedom. And I love that statement. We have a choice of response, and what we tend to do is react. Someone says to us, oh, well, I'm thinking about um, being, uh, going to a, a Trappist monk retreat in Tibet for three months where we stay totally silent, we meditate 12 hours a day, and we only drink water and eat rice. 
and someone's reaction to that is, oh my God, that sounds terrible, or <laughs> oh my God, that sounds impossible, or oh my God, that's outrageous, or oh my God, why would anyone do that? Um, if we paused, if we paused between the stimulus being the Tibetan monks retreat, we could choose a response and say, maybe that's what I actually could really learn from. Yeah. And, and what, what would I be missing in life if I actually spent a few months or a few weeks in introspection and reflection? Um, and, and that's what I think we... But by the way, we don't need to do something as outrageous as go to Tibet and be silent for four months. What we could do is spend one minute breathing in for 10 seconds and out for 10 seconds. <laughs> do that three times in, in 60 seconds. The impact on your life um, adds weeks and years onto your um, capability to be healthy. Absolutely. But uh, to be honest, it's, it's that reaction that you talked about that I'm really interested as well. Because even before the getting to actually practicing any of the breathing exercises, if, if society took away that negative reaction to what other people talk about when they have a new concept or idea that is completely bizarre and odd to them, then they'd instantly learn a lot and they'd have that conversation, they'd talk about the benefits it could have and they'd start on the breathing exercises even if they're not going to Tibet for four months. Mm -hmm. But it's that negative reaction that eliminates the, the option of going forward and bettering yourself in any sort of way. Yes, that's right. And the good news is everything you've just said is owned by us. So we, can, we own that choice. Isn't it such a wonderful life we have that we, we can choose... Um, how we respond. I mean, no one, and, and so we can't control what information the media gives us, but we can choose and control our response to it, which is my, my whole thing about fake news and, and um, uh, the US elections and Brexit is that what we're trying to do is we're trying to, as a people, argue these points. We, are, um, we have diversified opinions. We think that one particular president is a sociopath. We think that one particular prime minister or one vote has been uh, degradation to the whole of Europe and the country. And, and I'm, <clears throat> I find those things academically interesting. But what I find even more interesting is what we're not doing is pausing and thinking, how much do I personally need this to drive my happiness? Does Brexit actually drive the level of peace inside me and happiness? Do I have a choice over and above these decisions? And yes, I do. I, none of these things have any impact mm -hmm. on personally. I don't have any requirement. I don't care at all who's in charge of a political party or which political parties exist or what trade agreements there are in Europe. I could not give a less of a shit. There's <laughs> not... I care more. I care more about the colour of the next car that's driving around the corner. It's it's absolutely true, though. But I think that people get so involved in these minute conversations that they that they forget the yeah the everyday questions of how it affects you. And I think that at the end of the day, it's it's down to what makes us happy again. Like the conversation that I hear a lot is about what isn't isn't going to be in Tesco if Brexit hits. And in all honesty, like you say, that is the least, the least one of my worries. I'd be more worried about the people, my friends it's affecting, and the people that it's going to affect than what I can buy in a supermarket. But at the end of the day, that's generally not the conversation that's being had. It's about things that, generally about things that the newspapers are pushing down people's throats, and that's the only thing they read, and that's what they regurgitate and talk about again. 
which is interesting for the first two months maybe but in all honesty i'm quite bored of a few years worth of the same regurgitated opinions that's right and that's one of the reasons why i don't bother watching uh daytime tv i don't bother watching the news the whole thing is pointless um (laughs) also when it comes down to supermarkets there's very few things that we can buy from supermarkets that are good for us (laughs) yeah we'd be better off growing stuff if we're, if we're worried about the price of potatoes in the supermarket, why don't we just grow our own potatoes? Well, because yeah, we you go back to the whole education thing and half the people don't have a clue. Like, seriously right. think it's the hardest thing on the planet to grow a fucking potato. No, quite right. And that's why we have to arm people with information. Yeah, yeah. That's what we have to do. Yeah, it's, it's so true. I mean, just the simple fact of going travelling uh, is something that a lot of people think is is so difficult and they've got to save so much money for and and they view it as they want to go away sit on a beach and and have a holiday uh, which is lovely and don't get me wrong is is absolutely ideal to do but uh you can travel for other reasons and we traveled whilst on on the same budget we'd be at home we weren't treating it as a holiday we were living out there and that opens up the fact that you see how people live day to day and you see things like how easy it is to to grow your own vegetables. You see how easy it is to do your own repairs on your houses because you're seeing people do it around you constantly. And then you think of how much money people shed out for really simple things because we're told that we can't do it ourselves. And it's it, it kind of, you start to build this idea of a system that's, that's designed to make you part with your hard-earned cash, work more so you're stuck in this loop. Even though we live in a society that uses the internet for often the wrong reasons when you can learn how to do pretty much anything you need to do and save a shit ton of money on it. That's it. And, and what you've just said is the most rebellious thing in the world. And <clears throat> that's why if anyone asks me, you know, how could we, how could we cause a revolution? Um, it, believe it or not, I think that the way of causing a revolution is on a microscopic scale, each individual person taking the sovereignty of their choice literally. And thinking, I choose, I choose not to buy into this crap. I choose that ready meals that you put in a microwave aren't good for me. <laughs> I choose, I choose that I'm not bothered about whether or not this prime minister is in place or this prime minister. I choose that I'm going to grow my own vegetables. I'm going to walk in nature. I'm going to live in a way that is more in harmony with the way that we're structurally built to live. I'm going to put things into my body that come directly out of the ground that I then plant into that then generates things that come into my body. That's what I'm going to choose to do. And if even five more people choose from listening to podcasts like this to do that, and then next year, 10 more people do, and then next year, 50 more people do, that is what a revolution looks like. Because over time, if you zoom out, and you times that over a thousand years, billions of people have chosen. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and I'm less worried about what happens in my generation or my kids' generation. I'm looking at it over a span of the next 5,000 years. That's, yeah, that's what people and, have stopped thinking about. Yeah, it's long-term. Yeah, long-term. And if we can needle shift this, if we can just shift the needle by 0.1 of a degree or, or 0.2 of a degree, then we've actually won. We, we don't need to actually have a billion people or three billion people sticking two fingers up to capitalism. What would be far smarter is to take a longer view than the short-term Western capitalist view 
long view, which is let's quietly or loudly arm people with information of the choice that they have. It's the most rebellious, most outrageous, um, Rosa Parks, Pankhurst level, revolutionary thing to do right now using the tools, the weapons of mass communication that we have amongst us to widely distribute information that arms people with choice. It's the most revolutionary thought we can have. Absolutely, absolutely. So with, with this in mind, and uh, I know you've obviously advised big companies, and considering the line of uh, conversation we're having, I won't name any specific names. People can find that out themselves. Um, but a big part, I think, of arming ourselves with, with this knowledge and, and doing things for ourselves is, is good business, is knowing the steps we need to do to set our own businesses up, to, to work well. But how do we coordinate the two things? How do we not let power corrupt as it's done for so many businesses in the past and actually look at setting up businesses that take this line of thinking into consideration and, and are looking forward to the future, not just to make money right now? Well, every single company that I've advised, I've advised them on one thing. And um, so that's from Google, Ikea, Microsoft, Sony, um, Apple, uh, Heineken, Lego, Tesco, I've only ever advised them on one thing, and that is uh, to actually ask them who they are as people and whether or not what they're doing in their company matches what they stand for. And, and, and that's what I've done. And the reason why that hasn't been as successful capitalistically as McKinsey is because McKinsey will help a company uh, tune their taxation regime so that they don't have to pay as much tax and increase their profit. What I've done is enabled people to realize uh, whether or not they are actually in a role as the leader of a multi-billion dollar company that matches what their heart says. Yeah. And so, and, and I think that we can, we can do that for um, any form of company, any size of company. We can enable a new startup to make these choices as much as we can a large company. What I found is that... Um, there is, as many, there is as many issues in misalignment of heart and work in a small two-person um, startup as there is in a 120,000-person um, retailer. And so the, the work is still the same. And the fact that I've got these big brand names um, that I've worked for on my CV, as it were, if I did have a CV, um, it is kind of, it's kind of testament to the fact that it turns out that there are there's a similar question, questioning criteria in companies that you would think are deeply entrenched in the, you know, they are essentially the man. If you yeah, like. yeah. But these companies are full of people who are waking up each day and wondering sometimes whether or not they are living the truest version of themselves. And so from the conversations I've had, uh, occasionally I've had some chief execs resign. I've had founders um pivot the company i've had companies throw away their um throw away their uh strategy and replace the strategy with something that, that is totally crazy like making every single piece of their production uh out of recyclable material or <laughs> yeah. invest three quarters of their profit into um uh, into uh, sustainable energy initiatives and so i've managed to pull off some major coups in, in, in pivoting strategies of companies that you would think, you know, I, 
I've convinced, I've convinced chief execs to throw every single penny of profit into trying to remove plastic from oceans. I've pulled pulled massive heist. It's just a giant Robin Hood move. (laughs) And and no one noticed that I was doing it. And uh, yeah. That's so great. That's so great, Jonathan. And that's exactly, that's exactly what's needed. It's so funny that um, we get taught about self-analysis in such a, a strange and and fucked up way, you could say, from school. You get told to be like, oh, where do I want to be in 10 years? Which basically means how much money do I want to have? How much bigger house do I want to have? But we're not taught to do that self, same self-analysis with, with our morals and ethics. We're not told to go, right, do I still have the same morals I had two years ago? Or have I let the money I'm aiming for uh, edit the way I think of things? Am I making decisions I wouldn't have made two years ago because I'm trying to get more money? Like, we're not really told to look at these things. And uh, it's something that's so important for the betterment of society as a whole that we're actually bettering the way we treat each other and our morals as opposed to just yeah. progression uh, without any end goal in sight, really. Yeah, I would spend <clears throat> from age of five to, well, three maybe, or four years old to seven, not learning about the Tudors and <laughs> how many wives King Henry VIII had, I would spend the first three years of formative education in ethics. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would teach people, I would enable people to learn what values mean, what respect means, what kindness means, and what empathy means. Oh, but you see, that's, this is where people chime in, that that's the parent's job. And, and it's yeah. like, but if par- it's not happening, it's quite obvious that it's not happening. So it needs to happen somewhere, right? It needs to happen. I, I think, yeah, and one, one of the things that I think is, um, I mean, to be honest, it's probably from an ayahuasca experience um, that I've had in the past. I realized that we're all one thing. Uh, we're all one um, consciousness, uh, and, and we're just versions of that consciousness. So saying that it's someone else's job is the same as your body, your left hand, saying that it has no um, interest in what the right hand's doing. And so uh, let's take a school teacher is your left hand, the parent is your right hand, the child is the, 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 the left leg. Um, there is no such thing as someone else's job. There's yeah, the body. Yeah. And so we as a people are a body. In fact, not just people, the whole of nature and everything inside it on this planet and the planet itself and all of the other planets is all one body of energy. And that's actually physically, in terms of science, the truth. So if you break every single thing down, split the atom as many times as humanly possible through the quarks and the phasars, you get to a subatomic level of realizing that nothing actually has a material substance. Every single thing is just energy. Therefore, if we are zooming back out and seeing these things in physical forms, the ability to enable a child to understand ethics isn't anyone's singular job. It is the job of the whole of nature. It is the job of the parents, the teachers, the friends. What we need to be doing is arming every single person around us with information enough about ethical morality, about common sense, about love. These are the things that actually we need to be sharing as liberally as possible around 
And, and I don't buy into any statements that, and you're quite right, people do chime in, it's the parents' job, it's the teachers' job, it's, oh, it's because of government, or we can't learn that because we're not... Actually, there's no such thing as can't. No, no. The, the limits that are put onto us by society, by capitalist infrastructure and political infrastructure are, are it is, and I don't want to use such an inflammatory term, but these, these are... These are, I was going to use the T word, these are restrictive, these are restrictive um, covenants that are so that we remain prisoners. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it goes completely contrary to what we observe replicated in nature. Everything you've just said, and even in our ancestors, you talk about like animals who, who actually look after the cubs. Not, it's not one person's job, like it's, it's the groups. Yeah. And you still see, still see that in tribes, even to this day, where the kids yeah. aren't brought up by one person; they're brought up by by everyone. Yeah, yeah. takes a village takes a village to raise a child, man. It's it's so it's so natural and normal, and yet people walk down the street, see someone fall over, and literally think it's not their problem. Like it's right. it's so bizarre, and and no wonder we're we're progressing in some terms, but society, as long as it doesn't realise those simple factors. Those progressions aren't going to be for anything because it's, it's not helpful. That's right. And in fact, if we look at species and the elongation of um, their, their existence, the, the species that have lived longer, and so yeah, Homo sapiens, let's say we have a sub-100,000 year um, existence so far. The species that have been around for tens and tens and tens of millions of years don't buy into any of the shit that we have <laughs> into. And so we, we think that we are the most intellectually um, sound. We think we're the most intelligent. And it is tremendously naive to think that in the last four billion years of this particular planet's ecosystem existing, that we in the last 30,000, 40,000 years have somehow figured this shit out. We never be further from the truth of figuring shit out. We know virtually nothing about how we think virtually nothing about how the mind works. We are surrounded by huge abundance, massive beauty of endless supply of food and drink and sustenance. We have so much capability, but yet what we've done is we've divided ourselves up into microscopic racist communities that are still bent on killing everything around us and each other. (laughs) And, And so that will only ever end in the extinction of this in the extinction of this particular race of people, of, of Homo sapiens. And whilst tens of millions of year existences will continue, the way that, that, that most marine life uh, lives, the way that most animals live, um, we, we are the only, it's amazing that the only type of unconditional love that we have is of our, is of our progeny and our offspring. We hold a baby in our arms that we've helped create. That's where we can bizarrely witness unconditional love whereas in fact we have an absolute duty i think to realize that we have the ability to unconditionally love everything yeah yeah it's interesting i think i think that one of the the things that the human race gives itself the most credit for and uh and the thing that makes us us is actually one of our downfalls we tend to think that because we can communicate write things down make sums that that's what gives humans intelligence 
you could say that that's actually what enables us to plan attacks, realize that we should steal off each other, insult each other, and, and a vast array of other things, whilst there's plenty of animals in the animal kingdom who are intelligent and things work perfectly because they don't insult each other and, and lie about things to each other. So yeah, it's, it's a very bizarre <coughs> line of You're thought. right. I mean, you've, you, it's, it's, it's a Faustian pact we've made. And um, to use a Greek term, this is a, what the humanity is a pyrrhic victory. A pyrrhic victory is when you think you win, but you've actually lost. <laughs> yeah. And and so the whole of humanity is in is in is a manifestation of a, of the most humorous pyrrhic victory that in in thousands and thousands of years to come, this particular time in the world of of let's say, for the sake of argument. 40,000 BC, as we know it, to, let's say, uh, 3,000 AD, we will look back at this time and think that there is a... Uh, that it was so blatantly obvious that we were killing ourselves. Yeah. We, were, um, we were amusing ourselves to death. We were, we were walking around and trying to uh, annihilate the, the very same thing, the planet that gives us so much and we've put gases into the air and hate into the world to such an extent that we try and damage ourselves and nature as much as we possibly could. And, and I think that we, without being too fatalistic about it, we will only build the future that we want. And, you, and you aim, where you aim is where you arrive. And so if we could, as, as people individually, I'm not calling a, a call to arms of 7 billion people, <laughs> we could needle shift this and have tens of people or dozens of people or hundreds of people in various societies realize this if we could realize if parents could increasingly homeschool if we could if we could enable um, ethics to be infiltrated in classrooms just slightly you know I, I i've convinced one teacher myself <laughs> to integrate ethical philosophy into her five-year-old's classes. And she, <clears throat> in about two years later, three years later, became a teacher trainer and of dozens of teachers, and she has now enforced that ethical philosophy uh, leaning of lessons to all of their five So necessary, so necessary. Yeah, and so, and so from, from, from enabling one teacher, I've enabled 50 teachers who all teach something like 30 children each. So, the, so it's possible for, if I'm able to affect hundreds of children's lives through eth ethics, and it's just me, if we have 500 or 1,000 people doing what I've just done, we're going to end up in a state quite soon where millions of children can be armed with information. So there's a factorial network effect here that we all can choose to do. And, and I'm to answer your first question of what it is that I do, um, expanding the way that people think is something that I, I think that we all could do. My purpose in life could be absolutely everyone's purpose in life if we wanted to. That's, yeah, it's, it's really an interesting line of thought that we could carry on talking about, uh, I think, for a very long time. Because this idea that, that things have to be the way they are is something people are so stuck with. And, and it's making people be quite pessimistic and, 
and there is an element of pessimism regarding the the time we live in. As you said, we'll look back to it in generations from now and be like, fucking hell, we were killing ourselves. We were. But your point of view and what you bring to it is incredibly optimistic, and it's the fact that we have a say in this. And and the best thing we can do, as you say, is is gain knowledge and give other people knowledge so that we can change this, not now, but that's why people are feeling so shit about it, because all they want is for things to be fixed now. And at the end of the day, it's way too late for that. We're way past that point. Yeah, well, then again, I think things to be fixed, if we look at the main thing that we could fix, it's how we think. Um, and, and we could fix how we think whenever we want. And back to the addicts uh, point, uh, the ch- taking the choice um, and realizing that we do have a choice is the most singular thing that we could fix now. Absolutely. And, yeah. so, and so whilst we have done uh, hopefully not irrevocable but potentially irrevocable damage to the environment, what we could still reverse and revise is how we think, starting today. Everyone could do that. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, Jonathan, I had so much stuff that I wanted to touch on with you. I wanted to touch about the Jiu-Jitsu World Championships that you've coming got coming up. I wanted to yeah. talk more about uh, the digital revolution that we love talking about. Um, but I do try and keep this to the, the hour long. So maybe I think this has been a great conversation. Uh, and in a few months' time, we can uh, catch up again if you are free and talk about one of the other things if you're up for it. I would love that. Yeah, I would love to. I would love to. Um, I would love to do that. I mean, to be honest with you, the amount of conversations that that we could have are are infinite. And if there is another opportunity to 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 have a chat, another podcast, uh, that would be great. My my the World Championships, the Sports Jiu Jitsu World Championships are in August. Amazing. Uh, so, um, and, and that is the product of a coin flip. I mean, the last 13 years, I've, I've flipped coins and chosen between two things that I'm structurally less able to do or, or, or in theory, uns, unsure of or scared of, if you like. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that, that has resulted in all kinds of crazy things, including ending up in the World Championships in a, in a, <laughs> in a market that I didn't really know anything about. So, um, so these, but these are all choices, right? And so um, I'm... I just I'm like the fact that I'm able to to choose and then execute. I mean, I, I only do my life is structured around three um, uh, kind of a methodology of it's a it's triumvirate methodology, which is very very it's super simple. The first thing I do is decide. The next thing I do is then plan, and the third thing I do is execute. And so everything that I do that's executed is formed from a decision that is then planned. Um, And sometimes my plan can be to not plan. Sometimes the plan can be to let serendipity take over. But I always make a decision first. And the decision could be to let silence and the universe take over. The plan could be to go with it and let intuition run it. But then the execution of it is always all in. So there's an, I never execute something 3% or 68%. Um, there is only ever 0 or 100. Um, it's similar, similarly to, to how I believe um, businesses should be run and, and relationships should be run. I think you either, you either go in or you don't go in. And 
training in training in um, martial arts is the same. You you shouldn't uh, you you can't call this in. You can't dial this in and expect a result. Um, it's similar to people who who in New Year's Eve they make a resolution that they're going to get fit. They join the gym. They take a twelve month membership. They turn up for three days. They um, end up actually having more conversations and taking more selfies than they do working out. <laughs> Then they leave the gym and then go and have a Domino's pizza and then work out why they can't work out why they're three pounds heavier at the end of the week. All of the answers are directly in front of them. Every single answer exists. And if we want to achieve a result, we could do a lot worse than to decide it, then plan it, and then execute it. Yeah, no, I think part of the reason that so much of what you talk talk about sits so well with me is because I've been in periods of my life where I needed to either not survive those those periods of my life and just be like, well, I don't know what to do, I'm stuck here now, or do something about it. And when faced with those situations, I'd talk to, to the people around me and the, the decisions I was making to just change my situation immediately, to them seemed so bizarre. Like they, could, they couldn't put themselves in my situation. For example, when I was homeless in London, and and go from the moment I knew I was homeless to straight to DJ because I knew that that would give me enough income and a place to stay each night. Uh, and for them, that that process of actually having to do something that is maybe a bit scary, but is necessary. A lot of people, when faced with those decisions, will actually do nothing and will sit there and die if that's what it means instead of acting. Sometimes. That's right. So I I, I am in awe yeah. of everything you talk about because it really relates to to that. You have to do something and, and get off your ass and achieve something or, or things get really low and bitter. That's right. That's right. And I, and I think that it's, there's a, I love the fact that you've taken accountability for your actions and your thoughts. And, and, and in closing, one of the, <clears throat> if, if there were to be one piece of advice that I would give to any listeners, um, and I don't need to give this to you, by the way, because you've done this. <laughs> uh, the piece of advice that I would give to listeners is to own your own shit. To take accountability of your own shit. Actually own it. This isn't someone else's problem. This isn't because of the way you were brought up. I mean, I was given up at birth. I lived in four foster homes. I was violently, aggressively abused for 11 years. I've uh, been screwed over in business twice. I've, you know, I've, I, I buy the fact that everyone has a really, really bad story behind yeah, of them. Course. And so we've all got a background. We've all got our stuff. But so if I can own my own shit and take accountability, anyone can. And the, and the, 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 the ability to actually take your personal accountability seriously, that this isn't a government problem. This isn't where you were born. This isn't the color of your skin or how curly your hair is in a town of only white Aryan people. This isn't their problem. This isn't the government that were in charge when you were growing up. This isn't because your boss was an asshole. This isn't because your wife and your girlfriend left you. This isn't because your business partner screwed you over. This is on you. What are you personally going to do about it? And they go, yeah, but I can't because dot, dot, dot. Actually, you know what? That limiting belief is something that I don't. Yeah. yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. It's the limiting belief. And you don't need, you know, you can, I've had... I, end, I had £12.67 when in 2004, an extremely angry wife and two young children living in a car, 
behind a pub. Yeah. Right? I, 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 you, you, I didn't have enough money to buy dinner. Yeah. Right? So I, there is always a yes, but dot, dot, dot. But what I decided at that point with £12.67 in the bank, that I wasn't going to have this as the rest of my life. In, the, the thing is, the, the things that happen along the way are, are shit and they're crap, but the more time you spend blaming those, the less you'll get done. Like, you're in that situation way longer if, if you stop to blame that thing. And, and that's exactly... Everyone said to me when I was homeless, oh, it's your parents' fault, your parents' fault, because of the religion you got. And for the first two weeks, I agreed with them. I was, I was furious. It wasn't until I stopped blaming them and, and focusing on the problem at hand, how do I fix this, this problem, that things got better. Because right. th that stuff that happens, it's happened, and what are you going to do about it now? Just, just be bitter for, for ages and not get anything done? That's just That's right. limiting productivity. That's right. You know, I, I remember I had the same feeling when I was stabbed. Um, I was stabbed when I was five. I was stabbed when I was 16. And that 11-year bookmarking of being stabbed, um, both times I had a binary choice. The second time I had a choice between living and dying, staying on the ground or living. Um, that the choice of I'm going to stand up one more time than I'm pushed over. I'm, n I'm not actually going to stay down. I'm going to stand up again. Yeah. Something that if I could wave a magic wand and enable everyone to have, I would. And, and, and I, I, I understand that some people don't feel as if they can stand up again. And they are the people that I would love to get in touch with me um, through jonathanmacdonald.com if needed. Um, but if you, if you are listening to this and you feel that you want to take accountability, but there's a block and you just need a tool, a method, a, a pep talk, a, a way of getting over that one bump, then please get in touch because you can. I absolutely guarantee you, you can, whoever you are. Thank you so much for chatting to me today, Jonathan. I will obviously link to your website in the description and to your book and uh, I've really, really enjoyed our chat and can't wait for, for another one further down the line. Thanks, dude. I'd love that. I really appreciate this, Miz. It's been, it's been amazing. And I think you and Jane are absolutely brilliant, beautiful people. You're, you're a very, very rare and lovely example of what is possible when you live inside your love and you embrace the world for what it is. I, I respect you greatly, both of you. Ah, Jonathan, that means the world. Thank you so much, yeah. Thanks, buddy. I would spend the first three years of formative education in ethics. What values me, what respect means, what kindness means. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Promote the Hell Out of It. I really do hope you enjoyed it because getting to chat to Jonathan was an absolute pleasure. I think that a lot of what he talks about is extremely important to our role within society and to the preservation of society as a whole in an ethical way. If you did enjoy it, please, please share it with whoever you think will also enjoy listening to it. Give us a follow on YouTube or on Spotify. All of that stuff would really, really help us out. Thanks you once again. I would spend the first three years of formative education in ethics. What values mean, what respect means, what kindness means, or what empathy means. We are surrounded by huge abundance, massive beauty, and endless supply of food and drink and sustenance. But yet what we've done is we've divided ourselves up into microscopic racist communities, killing everything around us, killing and, everything each other. Around us and each other.